Welcome to the OMR Podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, and I'm an editor at OMR. This week, we're doing something a bit different with the podcast. It's a special takeover episode by Fida Gastro, the culinary podcast produced by OMR and hosted by star German chef Tim Meltzer. Meltzer, whose nickname is the German Jamie Oliver, due to his contributions to creating awareness for food, cooking, and health, is joined by the real Jamie Oliver, Jamie Oliver. Tim and Jamie are a couple of old friends who met working in a kitchen in London a couple of decades ago. They met up last week in Berlin to discuss nutrition and education, how they got to where they are now, reminisce about their London days with all sorts of anecdotes from the kitchen, and to talk in depth about Jamie's new cookbook, Veggies. Uh, a quick word about the podcast format, Fida Gastro is usually a German podcast, so... Please bear with us if you hear a bit of Deutsch spoken from time to time. Tim and his co-host, Sebastian Mergit, are doing that as a service to their core audience. All right. With that out of the way, let's take it away. Tim and Jamie, enjoy. If you believe the press, there are two Jamie Olivers. Once as James Jamie Trevor Oliver, a British cook, TV chef, a restaurateur and cookbook writer whose nickname is The Naked Chef, which goes back to his first cooking show and for the simplicity of ingredients and preparing his prescriptions. So. And once as Tim Melzer, a German television chef, entrepreneur and cookbook author, born in 1971 in Elmshorn, the son of a merchant whose nickname is the best chef in the universe, due to the fact that he is simply <laughs> the best cook in the whole fucking universe. Yeah. Oliver and the other Oliver go to know each other in the middle in the mid-90s in London when Tim actually wanted to quit his cooking career because it was very hard and rough in the kitchen. Oh, me, 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 me. But then Jamie came and was so impressed by the color variety of Tim's hair that he thought, ooh, I want to be friends with him for the rest of my life. And if he ever gets a podcast, that will be the first one in Germany I have to go. And here we are, Jamie Oliver, the German Jamie Oliver, Tim Melzer. We welcome you with great pleasure to Fide Gastro, Jamie Oliver. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. Jamie, very, very, very good to see you. Lovely to see you. Always. It a, is. A mixture of emotion. I think. Um, nostalgia. It is. A little bit of excitement in my genital areas. It's about um, 20, 20 years ago that we met first time. What yeah. was your first thought when you saw me? I thought you were crazy. Yeah? But why? <laughs> Because you had, at the time, luminous blue hair. Yeah. And uh, you, actually, you, I think you were the first German I ever met. No, you, you had Greta before. Oh, my, uh, my Helga, my, Helga, 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 my girlfriend. Yeah. She yeah. was your German girlfriend? Helga was my first German. Very yeah. first ever relationship? Girlfriend. Yeah, three days. Um, it was emotional, though. But <laughs> she, wasn't, she was from German heritage, but she was really okay. English. But she was very tall, and she did have to bend over quite a long way to kiss me because I was quite short. Yeah, um, I, I but yeah, no, you were the first proper German I met. I mean, and I what? thought, wow, um, every weekend... You would come back from your day off and you'd been to like Manchester or, you know, another city around Britain and I'd never been there. And I realized that even though I was a British boy, I hadn't got out much. 
And he was having lots of parties, going to different cities, working hard, playing hard. That's why I stayed in England. But we had fun, right? It was, it was an amazing time. Definitely, definitely. Amazing time. We all both started more or less at the same time, I think, different of two or three weeks at the Neil Street restaurant, owned by Antonio Caluccio, who just recently died and, and uh, passed away, which is sad. And, and, run, uh, and, and we were trained by amazing and, and beautiful person, one of the most beautiful person I've ever, ever met in my entire life. And luckily, do you say luckily? I don't know. Yeah, yeah <laughs> luckily, uh, luckily, he's still alive. Uh, it's our, our, our mentor and uh, yeah, friend, friend. Uh, Dad, somehow, granddad, mm -hmm. Italian Papa, Papa Gennaro Contaldo, and I mean, this was an Italian restaurant run by Italian guy, but cooked by a young British lad who just finished off school. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Cordon Bleu, or what was, whatever. Yeah, was. I was in Westminster College, but I'd grown up in my mum and dad's pub, cooking most of my childhood. And we, so had I kind of understood the kitchen, but you were fresh from Germany. Um, And where, actually, you just come actually from. No, you were in John George before you came to us. Is that correct, or was that after? No, after. Yeah. I, I, went, I came straight from from the Ritz Hotel. Yeah, like this bastard place, which, <laughs> I, which I really didn't like. And basically, it made me uh, thinking about to make a decision to stop with with uh, cooking, cooking to be a chef because I really didn't like the atmosphere at that time in in, in London. It was quite aggressive, very brutal, and and, and, and the, the the historical like famous hotels uh, it was like army mm. it was like military camp so and i'm not saying it's right or wrong i just think it's just not for certain people and it's efficient but also it's dull so i, I think i can really understand why tim felt like that and also the thing I is mean, when i came in there i was a german the first german guy at the ritz hotel and you still celebrated the v-day and when 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 i uh, <laughs> and, and it was all decorated like the, the end of the war yeah. it was all decorated like with propaganda uh, pictures with yeah, yeah. Adolf the Hitler from the wall in. and then the german came and all, the, all when i walked into the 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 mensa the uh, what do you call it uh, The place where the stuff had food. Yeah. What, what do you call canteen, it? Canteen. Yeah. Canteen. You, you walked into the canteen. So, so out, all of a sudden, everybody stood up and threw food at me. And, 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 and really? Yeah. They were singing so, like, two world wars and one world cup, do that. Really? Do that. Cool. My first nickname was a fucking retard. And I thought it's a nice word because I didn't speak any English. So they always call it, where's the fucking retard? And I, I went, here, chef, here, chef, here I am. And really? Was, That's awful. It was terrible. And, and right. was no like wonder a, you wanted to leave. <laughs> um, I mean, It's interesting that that kind of behavior was was common in those days, and it, and uh, also if you were a woman, it was as bad or worse. Yeah, uh, I think it was sexist. It was misogynist. Um, at the same time, there are thousands and thousands of restaurants and hotels, right? So, um, as with anything in life, it's all about the culture that manifests itself, and. Clearly, that behavior is not okay. I never realized it was that bad, Tim. That's it was awful. Even worse. It was um, even worse. I mean, ironically, um, if you look at the history of great hotels in, in London, um, it's, it's always had incredible executive German and Swiss chefs. Mm. But they were famous for not just doing a great job, but being able to hold a big structure together. So for hundreds of years, actually. Um, so it, you blame us now. Do you blame the Germans now? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, like I say, you, you were the first German I'd really met. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
And I think also the age that we were at, I mean, when you're sort of in your early 20s, you're just so glad it was like there's freedom because you're not in school. And then like for Tim, he was out of his country exploring. Uh, for me, I was out of, I came from a tiny village in the middle of nowhere um, and I was in London. And uh, every day I remember just being so grateful just to be free, whatever that meant. Uh, and, and I could do what I want. I could go to the pub. Um, I didn't have to use fake ID. <laughs> um, but also the ability to learn from people like Gennaro. And Antonio didn't cook so much, but he did have a kind of, kind of James Bond-like kind of aura around him. You know, the kind of the owner, the cigar, the whiskey, the way that he would greet all the guests. And, and, and you know, me and, me and Tim would be cooking and there'd be Pavarotti coming through. And we used to service the opera house and um, the opera house would have all like the great and the good and people coming after the show. Or we used to send hampers out to the, the you know the private boxes in the show um even for the royal family yeah interesting times but we had fun and we had and also fun. like me and tim actually were the foreigners in, in in that kitchen because that kitchen was only italians so there was only italians one german and one english so that's, that's the reason for your italian uh, laugh today that uh, basically, basically it's the reason for everything i do, I do today um, because as i said I, i really wanted to quit cooking i didn't like it no more and that time in the mid 90s uh, especially when yeah i, I had uh, my mom gave me a cookery book by um marco pierre white uh, the german word was culinarische welten culinary worlds i don't know white heat, was, I think it was white heat exactly yeah. was a black and white uh, 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 picture at cookery book and it was the first cook the first chef who was talking about atmosphere philosophy not only recipes and ingredients so and and he he, he was a he was a tough fucker he was a real yeah, tough guy i mean guy. ironically he was yeah. much more of that you know the behavior that happened in his kitchen was more similar to what happens in the ritz you know yeah, yeah. um And that's why I wanted to go to London, basically. But he was young and good-looking. He was. And he was the youngest two-star two Michelin chef in the world. Um, so he was kind of a rock and roll star. How, how right? old was he? I think he was 26 when he oh, got his two, yeah. two stars. Yeah, yeah. And then three um, stars when I came there. And basically, I worked for him for about 45 minutes and then walked out because I said, no, no it's stupid. And Gordon Ramsay then was his head chef. So, so I didn't I, come back? Huh? You didn't come back? No, no, no. I just didn't want to beat up, to be beaten up. So and it's, it's funny because all the um, for me he was also my hero as well Marco yeah because the thing is the industry as I'm sure it was in Germany it was very structured uh, very professional very safe uh, very male dominated sort of structure dominated and you know it was all about chef hats and how tall they are and um, just too male not just physically but mentally you know um And when Marco came along, it was like punk music came along. You're like, what? And, you know, there's pictures of him like naked holding a shark, you know, covering up his bits. And you're like, oh, my God, this is new. This is different. And uh, he was talented. But ironically for me, like, and, and, like and, and Tim may have experienced this possibly more so in your early career as a public figure on TV. But for me, like the first five years when I became famous was really challenging because my job, as is Tim's, is to try and get the mass public to try cooking anything. 
just have a go, find some joy, no matter where you live, no matter how much money you got, have a go, join, join the fun, you know, get involved. Um, but what was really hard is when you do that, it's actually, it's a generous thing because you want anyone to join. But also when you're trying to be professional yourself as a chef, the professional chef fraternity look at you and think you're an asshole because we are trained in such regimental ways. And when you step out of that to be accessible, you know, so what was really tough for me was like Marco was my hero, but like he thinks, and to this day, he still thinks I'm an asshole. So often your heroes, and, and he's often mentioned, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, often, but, but it's a shame. Like, you know, my five of my biggest heroes, you know, when I got to meet them, it was not pleasant at all. Um, and well, some of them I've made up with, um, and um, some of them I haven't. And did you ever worked um, in a kitchen in Germany? What, what I want to know is, how, how are the differences between working in a German kitchen in a restaurant or in, in, a, in a British? Is it I mean, the good thing is, it, but what I experienced when, when then finally I went to the Nifu restaurant, I explored a complete new world for me. Before it was about uh, uh, perfection and like this military way of cooking and everything was like sorted by colors and cutting and, and it was like like complicated but not really joyful. It didn't, didn't like started any passion within myself. So I, I was able to do a perfect jus and a perfect ratatouille and a perfect cut, but not perfect flavor. And then I went to the Neil Street restaurant and we had this funny guy, Italian guy, Gennaro, and he, he did a, a, the first risotto On, on which you couldn't plate any stuff because it was so Easy. juicy and creamy and just flooded away on the plate and looked basically like already eaten. And you put it again on the plate and I thought like, well, this is not proper cooking. This is just like, like not good. But once you stuck the fork or the spoon into this plate and you eat, ate it, and you thought like, wow, mm. that's flavorful. And the Texture, simplicity. Everything, flavors. And I, I remember so many great moments where, where he got some products and self-collected or the mushrooms delivery from Italy when they came in with the truffles and the entire room. Where do, you remember was the, like, do you remember the time I swapped the truffles? No. So, there's, so the white truffles, you, so for any business and for any accountant, If your restaurant uses white truffles, they are not happy, right? White truffles range, I mean, even back when me and Tim were cooking together, they were 1,800, 2,000 pounds a kilo. Now they're sort of 2,000 to 4,000 pound a kilo, depending on the year yeah. and if there's enough. And white, truffle, white truffles are just a nightmare. Um, and you weigh the truffle before you shave it. And then you weigh it again and, you know, 20 grams, 10 grams. But if you do, if your friend comes in and you do 23 grams, you know, <laughs> the restaurant goes bankrupt. Um, but, uh, but Gennaro always weighed in the, the, the truffles. So he'd buy in like 3,000 pounds worth of truffles and he'd weigh them on these like special scales. They'd be kept in sand. And it was about mid-May um, and I had some beautiful uh, new potatoes from Jersey and they looked just like truffles and I thought I'm going to get this fucker and um, <laughs> I removed all the truffles and put new potatoes in and covered it with sand um, and he started to weigh it and then because the sand smells of truffles like he didn't realize for like 30 seconds and then he realized and then he got on the phone to the supplier and I wasn't fluent at Italian by any means but I can tell you he, he threatened to do terrible things to this person's mother and um, uh, he was swearing and shouting and then I was giggling so much in the corner um, and um, then he realized that I'd stitched him up but 
Yeah, white, I mean, white, do you use white truffles in, in the restaurant often? No, not at all. Not Did at your all. accountant ban you? No, no, I'm, I'm not <laughs> using it because we got them in, in, in this most perfect condition uh, at Neil's Food Restaurant. And yeah. I've never seen any good quality like this uh, from a delivery chain, right. which, which I'm like would be depending on. Yeah. So sometimes, if I mean, if, if I like to eat them, but I'm, uh, within my kitchen, it doesn't make sense because, no. as you said, like I try to do a restaurant for messes, for, for people who are open-minded, for good food, good quality, for, but even to who can afford this kind of food. And, and as white truffle is it? just crazy expensive. No, but what, what you said, um, so we started off as a new street, and he gave me basically the passion for food. And sometimes uh, they call you the German, uh, uh, the English, to Melzer. They, no, basically they turn it other way yeah, around. Yeah, they call course. me the German, uh, the German Jamie Oliver, and it's That's right. and, and some some people are supposed or just just said like I, I I do copy you. And, and some conditions I do because I really, for me, you're uh, one of the greatest guys I've ever met. Big influence, um, your, right. your inspiration and everything, your energy, your your love, your fun about food, which gave me, of course, some some water under my boat to 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 uh, uh, talk about the same stuff. Why did why did I want to say it? I just lost it because of English. But also, I think the thing is, me and Tim were lucky, right? Because we. I mean, I must say, like, both of us are lucky because it's, I think, when we can both look at the last 20 years and our careers and what we've done and the achievements and the challenges and the failures, like, we've been very lucky. It was all about timing. Yeah. And actually, Tim being in that restaurant mm. with me specifically that year, yeah. you know, it was a really interesting year and time for Britain because Britain had had, like, you know, Maybe a decade of being quite boring, um, but actually the kind of time that we have both moved to London, um, there just was an incredible energy about anything artistic or creative. So, you know, all the international supermodels were in London, like just killing it. All the musicians were like just smashing it. Festivals were going from strength to strength. You know, and I think they used to nickname it Cool Britannia. You know, like it was just, there seemed to be like a, a, I mean, a moment. And I think, mm. you know, even here in Berlin, you can see like, you know, every country has times when there's like a very cosmopolitan bubbling scene where people are kind of, there's enough normality, but there's enough naughtiness. And um, I think for us, you know, me and, me and Tim both came from the same sort of genesis, really, which was a crazy Italian in a basement kitchen in the middle of Covent Garden, and, and and I think you know that sort of set us up for life, really, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I can remember times where we where we got locked in, in the cellar of the restaurant because still the bombs are going on from the IRA. So this was like like rough times. I mean, I was in the middle of London and I was like in the middle of civilization, and you couldn't go out on the streets because they were like on and on like bomb scare, bomb, bomb scare. So it's still a crazy time. And, and by especially the way, you're lots young. of people were getting yeah. killed from that. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just like one or like they were efficient. Uh, 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 you know, I remember living 200 meters away from the biggest uh, explosives hall ever. Yeah. They were going to blow up. They were going to blow up Hammersmith Bridge. That's a lot of Semtex yeah. or whatever they use. You know, <laughs> I, I lived 200 meters away from that, and I remember thinking, if it went off, you know, what would happen? <laughs> <laughs> Sitting there in my little studio flat, 
But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was edgy, wasn't it, London at the time? Yeah. Um, Do you think it was kind of a crux of the matter, knackpunkt for both of you? This crux of the matter? Crux of the matter. I just googled it. This is knackpunkt in German. Um, this time for you and for you in London for your career. Well, I think I, I think so. I think me and Tim were going to go on our career no matter what, and I think we were both excited about the future. I think Italy and the Italian spirit maybe made us both look at, you know, the, we had the respect for our kind of traditional French training, you know, um, which we both had, but also loosening it up a bit with the Italian soul. We were going to be fine, but of course then the Naked Chef happened and, and that was about a different story really. That was about like breaking the norm of, like the representation of cooking on TV in both Britain and Germany was quite old, as in, like, quite, it, it was quite, I don't know, I think there was, if you look at the time, there were quite a lot of 60-year-old men, generally, a lot of chef whites, and it just felt like a divide, it was like a divide, a divide between us and them, the public, so I think when the Naked Chef went crazy, you know, and, and Tim came back and started doing TV, it was like a change point in perception. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think both me and Tim were passionate that anyone can cook. You don't have to go to college. And actually there's, you know, whether it's a really good cheese toasty or a perfect steak or, or maybe a flash, you know, it's all good, right? There's, there's no good and bad cooking. It's, it, well, there is good and bad cooking. It's, it's just, it's not about posh, posh cooking. I would say it's enough about the old times because uh, I mean we are, we are we are sitting here for the new times yeah. for the for the for the, yeah for the for the new times. You just published your twenty second no. Yeah, it's the twenty. Think so. Twenty first, twenty second cookery book. Yeah, it's veggie. Why? Um, well, as you know, I'm not veggie, um, but I think uh, one of the things we do do a lot of now is. Uh, social media we have quite a busy selection of platforms and of course it's a global audience and what's really interesting is if you if you give a shit about that and you listen so i probably look at hundreds of comments every day my team look at thousands of comments every day and i think if you digest that um, you get to feel how the global public feel about food uh, the good bits and the bad bits and the things that they're worried about and the things they want help with. And for sure, for the last nine years, it's been like, look, you know, I'm thinking about going vegetarian, fine. I'm thinking about vegan, fine. But actually, mainly meat eaters going, I just want to know how to do more stuff with veg. I'm kind of, I was brought up with boiled cabbage, like the life cooked out of them. It's very British, mm. you know, boiled carrots for fucking two hours, you know. Um, so I think it was... Really, and, and, and also what was interesting is I kept saying, well, look, most of my books are vegetarian anyway. Like the 22, 21 books that I've done, 60% of it has always been veggie. Um, but then the veggie fraternity, vegan fraternity was like, no, 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 we want our own place. And, it, you know, it took me, I kind of avoided it for 15 years. I was, um, I was surprised by that it took you so long to, to make it like a veggie cookery book. Yeah, well, I to be honest, I, surprised I, I, well, actually, I wrote it eight years ago. Yeah. So that was the thing. I, and, and I think that was a real test of me, like me maybe possibly being professional for once. Uh, like I wrote it eight years ago and I was, two things happened that was quite interesting, Tim. Like, so I was really proud of it. 
the design language that we created was amazing, like one of the best I've ever done. But, and it was bang on time. But actually, I held on to the book and didn't publish it because I knew it wasn't the right time for the mass public. So I sat there and I waited and I waited and I waited and I published it this year. Now, what was interesting is the pictures in the old book are nicer than the picture in this book. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say. Um, eight years. And the design in the old book was more beautiful than this book. And then I had to have a real conversation with myself and go, okay, stop massaging your own ego about how beautiful the book is. Actually, that design language is not for this book now. So it was quite, it's quite an interesting... I think like, you know, both me and Tim have been doing stuff long enough now to know that really, of course we want to be creative, of course we want to do good work, but really there is this balance between being too far being too early you can be too early with content and you can be too early with design and you can be too early with conversation do you know what I mean sometimes the mass public so for me I reshot the whole book and made it cleaner simpler and do you know what I mean so yeah, it's, yeah. so for me and I think especially as a man like you know controlling your ego and just slapping it back down and actually if you look at the book it's just very if there's really lots of white space um, there's not so many, I mean, if you flick through the book now, like it, it's just clean. Um, so that I've never done that in 20 years. So, and, and I'm not saying I'll always do that. I'm just saying that uh, trying to think about who your audience is. And of course my audience is also a, a Germanic audience as well as a South African audience, as well as an Australian or, you know, so it was, it, it was an interesting one, but yeah, I mean, I, I probably was late. Well, I was probably too early. And I think now I'm just a little bit late, which is perfect for, I guess, the mainstream. What, what, what do you, what do you want to do? What do you want to say with this book? Uh, really, what I wanted to say was just that veggies don't have to be boring, mm. and um, and veggies can be. Uh, I, I think I think the wider conversation for me is, um, it's not a club. Like it, it, it's more like, and I think. And I think as I've got older and as I've understood farming more and as I've kind of become more kind of uh, linked into sort of the stories around environment, um, I think you should be really fussy about your meat. I think the idea of cheap meat every day is a really bad idea. It's really bad for you. It's really bad for the planet. So I think like, I love meat. So I think, and I think like, if you look back in history, like, meat was always kind of gathered with excitement and kind of sat around a table and like, carved and maybe say grace or, you know, like the idea of killing an animal for your own food is like, you know, it still feels, it should be uncomfortable. It should be. It shouldn't be okay. It's in the packet in the supermarket. It should be not just generic protein. It's like it's a chicken. You know, the French have always been very cool at keeping the legs and the head on. Mm -hmm. And and often British people would say, oh, that's disgusting. But actually what they don't realize is the head and the feet tell the whole story of the welfare of the chicken. You know, you can see if it was free range Or if you can see if it was mass produced, you know, uh, all, all of the tales happen. But in England, we take it off like uh, so, you know, if you show a kid like a chicken with a head on, they go crazy because they've never seen it before. So my, my, my question is about like when you started off with Naked Chef, you were like a 
like you're a celebrity chef you were doing like great food fun food like like emotional atmospheres friends fire fire workers people like this you, yeah, yeah. you were cooking for people and then uh, which i admire most about you is and then you started off to use your publicity to change things so you started off with 15 was the first thing wasn't it yeah so you, you build it up a, a restaurant where you train young people who didn't had the best times in their lives and to give them a second chance to to get them into the industry and you created many 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 great chefs all over the world and then you started off doing the school signer was it yep school the dinners yeah school dinners and and we were talking then about uh, why you got moved about it because you read an article about uh, uh, schools Dinner, a diner in, 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 in Britain that you in, in England you spend more food every day on pets than on the kids yeah. which makes you sick or which you make you think about it and you created this stuff and you you even got into the policy uh, yeah. you, you could do like big politics you changed the system a lot a lot and then you went about what, what did you do did next was it like well we kind of did like after school dinners I mean Yep. The interesting thing is we never stopped school dinners. That's what I mean. So that's, that's I mean, like, like, we've always had a team on it for yep. 15 years. So this, uh, this conversation about campaigning is like, people talk about it like it's like an idea or a TV format, but actually it's, it has, a, it has a long tail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we did things around, we did a show called Foul Dinners, which was the journey of an egg yeah. going off uh, into the meat industry. And you could just, and you didn't tell anyone what to do. You just showed... A, that most chicken that you eat is about 30 days old, you know, so people didn't realize a chicken's only 30 days from chick to cull, um, and then show the difference between organic, free range and intensive, but then also looking at the egg industry with, with battery farming. So what was, fan what was fascinating to me, Tim, was like 15 was really a story about apprenticeships and second chances and can kids that represent maybe a higher proportion of crime in our communities, can they be rehabilitated and become an asset? You know, school dinners was about don't feed kid shit 190 days of the year, you know, because they're our investment for the future. Um, and then what was fascinating is you do a simple story about, say, eggs, like, like battery eggs, egg, chickens that have never seen daylight. And the show went out on a Friday night It got 4.7 million viewers, which for us is very high. Um, and then the next day, Britain has never, ever shopped the same, forever since. So we, we, we got out of battery farming two years before Europe. But, so it, it became very clear to me that these TV shows that we do, they can be fun and they can be, we call them chop and chat, you know, sort of like chopping, you know, talking and cooking, but actually there's this sort of whole political side of food. Um, but also you can have fun, right? What, what we did in our, in our foul dinner show was we invited all these kind of people from the industry, politicians, um, you know, campaigners, activists. We invited them all to a gala dinner by Jamie Oliver. So they all wore their black tuxedos and they got excited. Um, and then I welcomed them to the event and then I pressed a button and the whole walls fell down and it was surrounded by a battery chicken farm you know and we walked the whole audience through the narrative you know what happens to all the male chickens in the egg industry well they get gassed or minced so we showed it to them and of course it's very frightening and it's disgusting and a lot of people are offended 
Um, but it's the truth. And also, why shouldn't people see the truth? So I, I, it kind of taught me a lesson that, I don't know, I think if, if, you give, if you give people good, clear information, often they make good choices. And I think now, if you look at the environment around politics, if you look at what happened in America, you know, um, I think without getting too political about it, like the one thing that seems to be okay these days is a lot of fucking lying. It's okay to lie. Just, just keep lying and lie convincingly enough with a smile and be entertaining and um, use stupid little one-line comments that resonate with parts of the population to make them feel more loved or more patriotic or more, more, more. And th- so for me, like, I don't know, it's sort of a, I think now's a really weird time. <laughs> I think truth, telling the truth seems to be a little bit out of fashion at the moment. Uh, I hope it comes back. That's that's basically what I'm heading uh, to. It's and then you you did fat fight, sugar fight, and, and yeah. you always have a, like a massive impact. It's energy not a, drinks it's fight. energy drinks. It's not a campaign. That's because you're one of the few persons who really changed the world. Sometimes only in Britain, but massively, and but sometimes even for the entire understanding of the Western European world, all about food. Because you're you're very uh, like people like like you the way you're telling them the way, way you're teaching them really like touches them so they they believe you what are you saying and I'm, i'm a bit surprised that you're saying by the veggie book it's all about fun so is, is there some bigger idea behind it or none um you know I what think, i mean Because yeah i think with, with the veggie thing it's it's there's a sort of outside bit and an inside bit i think from the inside bit what What I learned from Gennaro and then later Rose Gray and Ruth Rogers from the River Cafe was actually cooking meat simply and with respect is, op- is optimal. But really like veggies and herbs is where you should be like dedicating most of your time as a chef. So reverse the cycle. And actually, uh, and then you, if I fast forward 10 years, um, I, about five, six years ago, um, I, tra- I traveled around the world on and off to the places where people live the longest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that took me to, to many, many countries. But um, I also went back to university to study nutrition. So what was interesting, being a chef and growing up in the food industry and growing up in a village where there was farming, mixed farming everywhere, and then learning nutrition, which is kind of almost like It's like learning Latin and speaking French, uh, Spanish or Portuguese, right? It's when, I, when I learned nutrition retrospectively, it, I started to be able to just decipher things differently. And, um, and then I started learning more about supermarkets and learning more about soil and the planet um, and just kind of joining the dots, really. And I, and I think that the long story short is that Britain and Germany need to eat more veg and we need to be more fussy about the meat that we do eat. And if we can do both those things, then great farming of meat will flourish because, by the way, they struggle. Great farmers of great meat do not have an easy job. No. You know, to produce an incredible, amazing Germanic meat product when you've got something that's like five times as much for half the price, this is, this is hard, you know. So I think... Um, trying to get the population to be fussy about their meat and to like big up the veg I think was really really important and and I think that was what I was trying to do in the book was just yeah have celebrate that but also I think also if I do it because they know I'm not a vegetarian they're kind of thinking well maybe once a week we can do this 
And, and for me, for sure, like, I think like I'm probably veggie like four times a week. And then at the weekend, I'll go to my butchers and, you know, cook different things every, every week. And uh, we've got a good fishmonger on a Saturday that has amazing fish. Um, but, and I think as you get to a certain age as well, you know, I mean, like, you know, my, my, my <laughs> this year for me has been a nightmare, you know, just kind of like work-wise, emotionally, health-wise, um, I mean, and, and a busy family and a busy work, you know, and I think you get to an age where things, you know, <laughs> maybe you don't feel so good, you know, so I think definitely the veggie story is a good one. Is it an expensive one? Because um, so many people say um, 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 eat veg veggie is much more expensive than than the other junk one. food that, than yeah. food okay yeah. but is, is is this the truth or is it just um it's a it's a it's a semi-manipulated truth i mean i think the junk food industry are the only people that have the money to market to people um and of course if you can cook veggies i mean if, if you look around europe and and most of the undeveloped world they're creating incredible food from veggies that cost nothing You know, if you know how to cook and you have access to fresh food, you, of course you can cook much cheaper food than the junk food. But here's the thing, like, junk food's cool. That's marketing. That's what marketing does. Vegetables don't get marketed. They don't own your Olympics. They don't own your, like, World Cup football. You know, they don't own your favorite, like, game on, you know, iPad or, like, yeah. Nintendo. Do you know what I mean? So I think um, there's... It's just, yeah, it's, I think it's um, what's, and as we get busier and busier, and as technology saves us time and more time, actually what's happening is, is people are choosing to get takeouts. And so you got, I, I think, you know, as you look at your own communities, it's, it changes, the, the speed of change. I mean, even like Tim, in the last three years in the UK, like we have these apps, like Uber apps, but, but for food, they're really efficient. Um, they do what? Uh, you basically, they, they, instead of cooking anything or instead of even going out to a restaurant or instead of even going to a supermarket, you just flick through a menu of like dishes and, and there's like, say, 20 restaurants in your, you know, one mile area yeah, yeah. and they'll deliver it to you in half an hour. So that, that, that not only has completely changed the pattern of everyone's week, nutritionally it's completely changing the pattern. And without question, it's making things worse. But also as a restaurateur, who pays for lots of staff and lots of rent and lots of rates, um, all of a sudden there's people that are able to run, they call them dark kitchens. You know, they have like a little um, like lorry container, you know, half the size of this room, and they can knock out food for 10 brands and at, in a car park. And you're paying to be in the prime location in a high street, And everyone don't want to come out. <laughs> that's even in the last three years that's happened. And, I can, and also, I, I have permission to say that because in the UK, I lost all my restaurants this year. And I would say the two main reasons for us that happening to me was the rates, the business rates were just too expensive uh, and the rent. Um, the high street, of course, is declining in the UK. So there's less people on the street. But also, we weren't, We weren't able. It's re how we weren't able to go with a div digital rev revolution because you know it's really hard to have diners sitting there eating homemade pasta with some sweaty, 
hairy-ass cyclist, you know, coming in to pick up another delivery. Like, it just, it just, it just doesn't work. So I think, like, you know, the, the industry is constantly... And that's just the restaurant industry. I mean, if you look at... It, you know, supermarkets are changing, farming's changing. And even if you go back to the political side, like, subsidies and farming is changing. So... You know, is it, how is, do you, is, it, is it sometimes frustrating for you? Like you have food, like in, you have food fighter since twenty years now, and you, you really and I believe you. It's not not something like oh you make up like it's coming out of yourself, and you really want to change things. And you trained and taught the people, and the knowledge is bigger than ever. The knowledge about ways about mistakes in the food industries. We we know all basically basically we have all informations on the table. So do you think it's sometimes frustrating? that you're fighting since 20 years and you do so many good things and basically we're talking about a beautiful, beautiful world of food and flavors and making experience and socializing on the table and then basically sitting here and saying, well, it's a nap yeah. who makes it difficult for me yeah. to, 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 yeah, to, to stay on the market. Yeah, look, I agree. I think, I think my, my brain, which is sometimes a peculiar brain, uh, like, You know, I can kind of get in it and sort of be frustrated and act like a normal person. But what I, I think, I think definitely one of my strengths is to be able to get out of it and look right back. Yeah. And, and I think like being maybe a bit more experienced now and, and a bit more philosophical about the scenario and the fascination about history and the industrial revolution in Germany, in Britain, you know, we were way ahead of France, Germany, Portugal, Spain, you know, so, so. Re any revolution, whether it's an industrial revolution or a digital revolution, um, they have always changed everything and, and fast. And there has always been winners and there's always been losers. And there's always been success and there's always been failure and death. You know, um, always and forever. You know, it was only 70 years ago when most German ovens were fired by coal or wood. It, the concept of an electric oven is still very, very new, you know. So uh, you'd only have to go that, that long and we didn't have sewerage. Thank God for the Romans, you know. Uh, so I think, um, I think when you're being philosophical about it, it's, it's all part of, it's normal. I think the scary part of it is this digital stuff can speed up quicker than what man was able to do with a welder and a, and a hammer and a create, you know, like building pyramids and, um, and building railway networks and engines is one thing. This is kind of like much faster. And, and I suppose at the end of the day, humans hate change and they want convenience. Humans are programmed to save time always. I mean, I, I remember going on holiday in... Cyprus when I was a kid and we'd be driving to the hotel from the airport and there'd be all the women in the river washing the clothes on those kind of maraca things you know when 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 washing machines come in that stopped and you think well thank god you yeah, know sure. I don't want to do so I think I think you know that the, the food narrative I think from the food point of view the two the two things that seem to drive Everything on mass is price and convenience. And interestingly, in my opinion, convenience is number one, price is number two. So we see on mass, same in Germany, that the poorest communities would rather buy, you know, mashed potato cooked instead of buy, buy potatoes and mash them. 
you know, convenience is king. And then price is also king. So, you know, when you're talking about authenticity, integrity, free range, even vegetables, salads, five a day, you know, fucking goji berries and all this, you know, this is a million miles away from the king of mass, you know. So I think... That's what I'm thinking about. Like basically always when I do a cookery book and I've done a, even a vegetarian book eight years ago and I, because I thought the time is, is yeah. more than on now um, just to change the way of thinking like, like th that vegetarian or vegan food is not a food of less uh, Verzicht. Wie sagt man Verzicht? Of denial? Yeah. No, it's 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 a, a nutrition full of joy and, and 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 a lot of experience with different flavors and consistencies and, and stuff like this. Um, ich vergesse, ich kann nicht denken und Englisch reden gleichzeitig. I can't think and, and talk English at the same time. Same I always got lost. Um, what was about the vegetarian? Um, I really don't know what you want to say. How did I start it? Well, you cooked did it. You I listen, mean, did you listen to me? It's, it's interesting. That, so you, you published your vegetarian book eight years ago, which was perfect timing. But probably if you published it in the last three years, that would have been the language to the mass market. I mean, that's, I think that's the, what me and Tim hear from our audience. Ah, is no, often, I, no, I got it back. I'm back, you see, look, as I helped you. Reel, reel you in. No, and it's, when, 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 when I open, or when I, have the first ideas of a cookery book for me the main thing about all recipes is time as you said convenient because the time changed so much and the social life the family life the work life the the entire life with yeah. all these uh, these uh, uh, possibilities we nowadays have it changed completely and convenience and time is one of the main things we have to put in the recipes otherwise we will lose people do the self-cooking yeah and, and it's all entire steps like the cookery houses which prep uh, recipes with already measured uh, uh, ingredients. I think it's yeah. a smart idea. It's yeah. quite difficult and still too expensive because yeah. now the balance is much higher. I mean, everyone's But, trying to solve the problem, right? Yeah. I mean, those cookery houses, which, you know, we, we got involved in one very early on that's here Enough. in Germany yeah. as well. And I was an early shareholder. I, I did one year and I got the fuck out Yeah, because I thought they're all lying. They're all saying how wonderful and fresh it all is. And it's just the cheapest stuff and a lot of plastic and a lot of packaging. Uh, but actually, uh, to Tim's point, I love the idea because any excuse to teach the public, any excuse to hold their hand and say, look, 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 we've done the shopping. Here's a recipe card. Crack on. I mean, that's brilliant. But I, I actually think the supermarkets can do it better. Supermarkets are much more robust and much safer. Their supply chains are much more uh, rigorous. But... But this is it. I mean, I think what's, what's the revelation for me in, in the last year, I've been studying quite a large group of British consumers that are the most vulnerable and have the least amount of money. And even after sort of 15 years experience working in those areas, my instinct was off, which is really worrying to me. Like I was trying to second guess the customer having been through working in many homes, working in many areas, in schools, and, and my instinct was off. So I, I've been educating myself about what it is that they need. And I think the interesting thing is, um, back to the convenience thing, like even when me and Tim keep the recipes simple, which is wonderful, um, that audience 
wouldn't even dream about peeling an onion yeah. and chopping it. What, frying it for five minutes and then adding, no, 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 no. It's, so, it's, so it is much more, and this isn't like an, an opinionated kind of comment. It's like, it's much more about versions of pot noodle. You know, it is like, it is like, it's very, 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 very simple. And um, would it be an idea for you to go into the food industry and produce convenience food, but with a better understanding yeah, I think of so. ingredients? I, I, I think we're trying to do that. And I think we're actually finding some hope in the freezer area. The freezer seems yeah. to be, although it's old technology for us, The freezer has been somewhat misused in Britain and Germany for, for maybe 20 years. Yeah, and um, what is the big idea? Well, the interesting thing is if you want better quality at a lower price, it's freezer. If you want to have a scenario where the whole system has less waste, it's the freezer. If you want convenience where you can grab it or grab a bit of it, it's the freezer. Um, and if you want to lock in nutrition, and if, you, if, you, if you track, say, vegetables and... Um, You'll, you'll see that like the freezer is 10 times more efficient than fresh. So as a chef, that's a tough pill to swallow because we love fresh. But those carrots might have been sitting in a warehouse for like nine months. So the minute you pick that carrot, the nutrition just depletes. So you, you kind of have to remember, like even going back to the dinosaurs, like, you know, a lot of those dinosaurs were big and they were vegetarian. So, so the quality of that nutrition so it's not just eating a carrot, it's the quality of that carrot. Because I had the same, I, I had an offer by a company who was doing like frozen food and frozen products basically. And I was like always on left, wie sagt man, zerrissen? Torn, torn. Yeah. I was torn because I thought, no, I'm a television chef and I want to teach the people to do fresh food. But on the other hand side, I want to move as many people as possible. Sure. And can I say really, Go for it. It's fine. It takes it, it. It saves you time and it's easy. And the vegetables, like freshly frozen on fields or by, beside the fields, are uh, a much higher amount of vitamins and everything. And it's, it's sad to say, and it's 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 But I'm frustrating to say. No, because it is, I it is frustrating. See but the I think picture on the market. I want to like the smelling guy on the tomato. But, but know, I think it doesn't. Not the smelling. I, but that I think the torn thing is an interesting one, like because. Obviously, we both have built, we've built trust in an audience for, for many years now. And I think, you know, as when you really look at your audience, you know, the idea of cooking from scratch something from one of our books is really a once in a week, twice in a week thing. So the reality is, is, you know, if Tim Meltzer did a frozen lasagna that was good and, you know, lovely free range eggs in the pasta, you know, good quality pork and beef blend, you know, lots of yep. maybe the proportion of beef is like... 50% and the other 50% is a lovely sofrito of carrots and onions and garlic and herb. You know, that's, that's really useful. And also when they reheat it, it's, it will be good. You know, so I think like, so weird, I mean, weirdly, that people, there's such a large audience that just don't have time to cook. I mean, also making a lasagna, by the way, is the hardest thing to do. It takes, it takes forever. Doesn't it? Like to making your sauce, stew, cooling it down, making your bechamel, layering it up, you know. So even like when it comes, you can also fix, like even when it comes to cheese, you can do a blend of five cheeses. Yeah. You, no one normal is going to do that. But so I, th I, do, I think industrial, I mean, I've, I, I used to be very torn and I used to be also very opinionated about big, medium and small. And I, I'm, I'm a massive, massive lover of the slow food movement. But when everything's perfect and small, 
it's also like it's three percent of the population that can play that you know i think there's a lot of people out there that want would you say that um this uh this book veggies is the best you ever did or is it just uh, another another theme i would say it's another theme i mean i'd say that's the that's the the cousin or the brother now let's make it the sister of five ingredients mm -hmm. so um if you stand that next to five it, it feels the same it feels like you know part the same sort of language and when i was talking to you earlier about we changed you know eight years later we reshot the whole book and we redesigned and we re actually i rewrote the same recipes um that was more about tuning the focus into where the public are now and um yeah i think uh, what are your top three cookery books as in success or as in love no, my in love. personal love yeah. i think my first one will probably be Oh, it's tough. I, I, let's do the first three instead of my favorite. Um, my first Italy book, I really loved. Jamie's Italian? Or? Yeah, Jamie's Italy. Uh, I just loved that. And I think Italy is a country and a food, the cuisine that people love. So it's a comfortable place. I did another book called Jamie at Home, which was a really interesting one because, like, my broadcaster didn't want the show. And... Um, uh, What people don't realize is that me and Tim have to go to the broadcaster and pitch an idea. And the public think that we're these famous chefs and everyone says, yes, Tim, or no, yes, Jamie. And it's, it's, it, I, it's hard. It's always hard. And yes, if you've got a show that's successful, they might listen to you a bit more, but they, they nearly always say no to most of it. And um, uh, I pitched Jamie at home to my broadcaster and I'd been there for 10 years and given them like... BAFTA awards and you know perform well and um, yeah I, I want to grow stuff and cook it and eat it no 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 I really I really want to do it it's an amazing no 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 it's not channel four it's I mean you know and that's the thing is people always say oh it's not this channel but you're you're talking to someone that a has a bad relationship with food and b has only been there for like six months and you've been there for, at the time I've been there for 10 years so what I did was I, I self-broadcasted. So I commissioned... In those days, I had some money in the bank that's, <laughs> like, hanging around. Um, and uh, I always say I'm much more fun when there's money in the bank, you know, like... This week, because if we have ideas, we do it. You know, things have been a bit tight for the last 10 years. But the... Um, no, what I did was self-commission myself. And it was the most... Um, the most incredible experience to be your own commissioner. I commissioned 13 shows... We proved that you could make a certain kind of show in one day. Uh, by the time we'd cut three of the shows, I commissioned myself to do another 13. So it went spring, summer, autumn, winter. We did, um, and we created the book. And I loved that book. And it was really interesting. Again, it was fascinating because the book that I made was thicker and more textured and more kind of frumpy and more hippie and more kind of cook more elite cooking. Um, elite's the wrong word, more advanced cooking. Um, and my big competition in the UK was Delia Smith and Nigella, who were very, very popular. And they did Express and Cheat, which were really like conven convenient-led. And what was interesting is their books sold like hotcakes, massive like peak, and mine was quite slow. And everyone was looking at me like, Jamie, what have you done? You've messed up. And then what happened is... 
these books dropped off really quickly. And Jamie at Home sold consistently in Britain for like, well, for like three years. So I think it, like, people came, and then that book was split up into like tomatoes, broad beans, peas, you know, um, all the stuff that we'd grown. So that's probably my second. And then probably, actually America. America, my, America cookbook was my least, my least popular uh, to the public. But actually, it's probably the book that I'm, like, if you flick through it, the photography and the journey. Actually, everything about that was tough. Like, it was the most expensive show we've ever made. It, was, it didn't get distributed very well. Uh, the book wasn't as popular as anything else I've done in 20 years. Um, <laughs> I thought everyone loved America, but nope. um, uh, no, no, I uh, don't know what happened. And, and what was ironic was, um, other than Iron Chef uh, in America, it was the most expensive cooking show that I'd ever made and certainly was ever made in Britain. Um, and uh, when we went to sell it around the world... The one country that didn't want it was America. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, they quite picky with British yeah, well, people. Huh? It was very honest. Yeah. I mean, they, they, America. This is the reason. America has bought about everything it. that I've done. They, yeah. they, they don't really like like British people like telling them how to do, how to live, how to. Well, we we. I mean, certainly the America program was a celebration of America, but we were also very honest um, about just like you know we were cooking with the Navajo Indian you know, it, it's not just going to be a celebration. Like, yeah. This is a repressed, you know, First Nations group of people who are suppressed by, you know, English, Germans, Irish, uh, Americans. I mean, we're all part of the story of America, yeah. right? But really, I mean, and it wasn't like we weren't, it was just an honest, fascinating story. But, um, but yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, back in the day, I launched Food Network in America. So I was one of their first three presenters on the show. So it was quite interesting that when, you, when we spent a year and a half making that, it was completely over budget. I don't think we've ever broken even. Um, but but at the end, it was very successful? Uh, I don't think so. It's a beautiful product, but I don't think it, success is based on sales and breaking even. Uh, I don't know if we ever did that, but definitely it's one of my favorite books. If you look through it, I mean, it's got such a... Because really, America's just a melting pot of the world. So in the America cookbook, you'll see a Germanic in influence. You'll see a Chinese influence. You'll see an Italian influence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I loved it, but just... Um, I can tell you my my two uh, my three favorite Jamie Oliver cook uh, cookbooks. Uh, definitely, it's the first one because it's an all over the world game changer yeah. for the entire industry. Really? For yeah. you, a game changer, or for the whole? For the whole. In my opinion, it's the, for the whole world because we had the first time all over the world a person who's doing like enjoy enjoyable, easy going home style cooking food with influences all over the world, but on the very deep impact with a very deep impact not just like okay you spread some curry powder you, you you change it completely the thinking you moved an entire generation of cooks it's i travel a lot the world and um But did I, you I'm, change it for you as a chef or do you think for, ev for everybody every plate change every the way of thinking about food uh, about uh, um what do you say concepts and restaurants uh, the, the the way of 
putting food on a plate changed completely. I always call it pizza style, Jamie Oliver pizza style, because basically every uh, like stupid fucker can take two big hands and just chuck them on the plate and <laughs> sprinkle some olive oil over it and, and, and maybe sausage some... Fingers, so, yeah, have you sausage fingers, I'll have you I was looking for the word. And put some Parmesan <laughs> cheese about it and, and you said like, wow, it's beautiful. It's uh, Jason Pollock on the plate and, and everybody is able to do this and basically it's full of colors. It's like a... So that changed. Can you the see his smile face? Yeah, yeah. The entire industry. The best cookery book for me definitely is your Italian cookery book. That's that's amazing. I, I envy it a lot because it's just a great cookery book. And it only has one mistake. It's your name on top and not mine. <laughs> that really fucks me off. <laughs> and the next thing, again, again, so again, again, game changer is Jamie at home. You, 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 you. Um, I, I was like, oh, I'm now planting my own herbs and tomatoes on the balcony and stuff. It's just stupid shit. It's like some smart ass talking about it, how I have to do it. And then you showed it. And then you just, just, just made it like, like so. You, you, when you watched, when I watched you doing what, what you have done, I wanted to be the same. I wanted to do the same. It was such an inspiration. And that's, for me, the three top Jamie Oliver ah, books. And you. when you have them, and everybody should have them. And what really pisses me off, everybody has them in Germany. So <laughs> I have so many yeah. friends, serious. Yeah. I come there and, I, and, hey, can we cook some stuff well, together? German, and I go say, yeah, yeah. And you always see, like, Jamie Oliver. And I was like, Jamie Oliver, Jamie Oliver. Just Tim? make sure we're next Tim? to each other. You know Tim? this little story when, when, Tim, when Tim walked uh, um, uh, to, to buy some ingredients that um, the dealer asked him, oh, you watched Jamie Oliver again? Oh, it, was so, <laughs> it was so embarrassing. It was, it was seriously embarrassing. That time you had the show on the Atelier 2 in, yeah, in, in yeah. Germany and was uh, uh, laying in bed after a hard night out, Friday, Friday night out, Saturday morning <laughs> and laying in bed. And my girlfriend then uh, said, like, we watch your program. And I was in television already so and I was like on more or less on my peak of my my career and then she said like and you did some I think Brazil Brazilian fish stew with yeah. some lemongrass and and yellowish curry turmeric inside and stuff like that yeah. and she said like can like can you do it for me and I said yeah it's Jamie Oliver and <laughs> yeah, well, can you do it for me and she I said well yeah okay so I, I walked out on the streets and I went to the fishmonger And I ordered some shrimps, mussels, fish stuff, and it was kind of a Brazilian. And he looked at me and said, so you're watching Jamie Oliver as well? <laughs> so what? Because people went to the monger and bought your recipes. That's like, amazing. Like, they, it was broadcasted, and people decided, decided then to go out, buy the stuff, and I got caught. So they, they, it was kind, kind not embarrassing, because it shows me that I know quality, but on the other hand side, it's like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's, I think it, it, what's, what's nice about cooking, it, like, no one's made anything up. Anyone that says I've invented something, they're all liars. Unless you've invented light or water, like, I'm not interested. Like, everything's an evolution. And, you know, like, when I put, I'll give you an example. Like, when I put chorizo in a paella, Twitter went mad. I had death threats. Like, it was in the press all around Spain. It then went around the world. It then came back to England. And it's a, basically... So, of course, you just have to shut up and let it play out. But, you know, sometimes when you've got something good to say, no one will print it. 
And then when you put a sausage in a paella, everyone's printing it. And it's like, just a minute. And then there was quite a lot of aggression about it as well. So first of all, like... It's like putting some ham in, in your veggie yeah, recipes. You've got this kind of these yeah. people like protecting like uh, this classic paella. But that's of a specific area. And it, like I know without even asking that anything went in that pan. Anything yeah. moving, when you are hungry and when you are poor and when you work in a field and you light a fire and you've got a big pan, your paella, and, you, and you've got some rice as a base, you've got some vegetables, sometimes it would just be vegetables. If anything moves, right, rabbit, yeah. snails. Like, and so, so I know that I'm okay. But the, the reason I, I mean, the simple reason I put paella, uh, uh, chorizo in that paella was twofold. One, it tastes good, right? But also, two, like I, I can, when I'm writing a recipe, I'm picturing an average cook in their home. And one of the most important parts of what me and Tim do, especially if we're simply cooking, is seasoning. And teaching seasoning is so hard because you're tasting for salt and pepper. You're tasting for acidity. It could be lemon or vi vinegar or citrus fruit. Um, you, you could be using herb or maybe a spice. But it's really hard to teach and it's completely subjective. And your mum could cook something beautifully seasoned and the same recipe could be cooked by your sister that's not seasoned that tastes like shit. So by simply putting chorizo in a paella recipe, you are guaranteeing that a bad cook gets an amazing product. So I put it in the recipe and all hell broke loose. And I had like six weeks of abuse Yeah. Uh, and then, thankfully, a, a, a few famous chefs in Spain were like, look, there's recipes that are 300 years old with sausage in it. But I think it, what's funny about cooking and inventing and, and bouncing off of each other is um, no one's invented anything. Did you have any problems with the vegetarian cookery book? Because when we sat together, me and my team, and we had great ideas, yeah, and, and we had great ideas for flavor, and sometimes we were missing some certain flavors, and, and then we said... You know what would be nice? Some bacon. Some bacon. <laughs> Some bacon. Obviously. The amount of times so, I said yeah. that. So, and, and, and we, we, like, the most difficult stuff for us was, like, finding out flavors who work like your chorizo yeah. or, like, bacon or yeah. sometimes smoke. when you want to be smoked. Yeah. So that's basically what we did. Yeah. Was it a problem for you? And, Definitely. And, and what is your big idea behind that? So well, how can you make it for, a like, some person who, are, who is a meat eater? Like, uh, and he loves meat and he doesn't know why he loves meat. He just loves meat. Yeah. Like when you want to convince him to eat more or less meat, but still have the full flavor. What, yeah. are, what are your ideas behind it? I think it's a really good challenge. I think, you know, when I was doing what you were doing, uh, oh, I need something. Like also I was imagining my dad. So I wrote the recipes to make sure my dad would be like, that's okay. because he, he always has to have meat. Um, and my mum's always trying to feed him more veggies. But I think essentially um, we had to work harder on slow cooking the vegetables at the beginning, mm -hmm. roasting vegetables, getting intensity of flavor, using little tricks like smoked paprika, mm -hmm. miso, um, harissas, you know, things with complexity. And I think, you know, as I don't know if they use the word umami in Germany, yeah. but the, the fifth flavor. So, um, you know, really thinking about depth of flavor from mushrooms from um things like parmesan um you know uh, olives will you ever be able to publish a cookery book without parmesan cheese 
Never. Never, ever. ever. Never. I have a contract with Parmigiano Reggiano. Yeah. Do you? I mean, no, I don't. I don't. But ironically, Gennaro does. Gennaro is the representative, so maybe. So that's why I thought, because I always say, like, the best vegetarian, like, like uh, nutrition or diet, anyway, is the Italian cuisine. And then I thought, like, how can you make Italian cuisine vegan? And I said, no fucking way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take off the Parmesan and they, they will die. Yeah. There will be a plan without water. Well, they Just are, take it away. They're, they're, they are selling some vegan-friendly Parmesan-type cheeses now. Okay. Are they any good? But, uh, yeah, they're good. And what's, what's quite interesting is yeah. um, a, a lot of very historic Italian and British cheeses uh, are, are, are actually naturally vegan. They would use thistle or cardoons yeah. to, or even fig, fig milk. To we split the. Uh, we the just milk. made a quick uh, okay, yeah. uh, break we because we, we, we get some visit. <coughs> Francis and, uh, yes. Some some lady want to say hello. Yes, it's your. Um, yeah, no. Secretary of. Federal Minister of Family Affairs. Yeah. She's coming. You know, that's one thing they they you've been like my guest at the cookery show I've done uh, like six seven years ago and 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 do you remember that? Yeah. And still, the, taking, uh, the people are taking the piss off, out of me because of my English. When I said to you, don't come me with this shit. Still, people, seriously, we just had it. It's, it's, uh, it's funny. Huh? It's, it's very funny. funny. People love it on the internet. They always say, uh, English for runaways. Um, <laughs> I've always thought your English was very let, good. Let, we just had a small break because our Minister for Family Affairs uh, just uh, uh, joined us. And mm. uh, Did you like her? Yeah, I thought she was very good, actually. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know enough about her um, to have a, a rounded opinion, but she seemed very good. Uh, and she was talking about how they'd invested a lot of uh, time, effort and laws and money in early years, which is from zero to six. Interestingly, this is something we're really, really bad at in the UK. So I think, you know, without sounding the other part of my brain, which is, you know, there's quite a lot the political side of food when when your neighbor in germany which is a highly respected company within a country within europe when they're doing something positive in an area mm -hmm. like what's interesting for me is we can translate that straight to britain and then when they come up with bullshit excuses to not do something we'll go well they are in germany um, at the same time, there's stuff in Germany that they haven't done and we have done in England. So I think in, in a kind of funny way, um, the one thing I've learned in 20 years is relationships are the most precious things. Trust and relationships. The point, the point of Europe in the first place was to learn from your, your neighbours, right? Yeah. And test things and try things and no one's perfect. But my God, if something's working, then why would you not open your back door and let another country come and learn from you and I think um, so anyway what am I trying to say I'm trying to say that I, I mean I'm very aware there's loads that Germany are not doing and you'll know what I mean I don't know why things like the sugary drinks tax why has that not happened in Germany already um, it's completely I wanted, wanted to know of, of you like how, how long does it take you as the public person above it There will be a lot of people uh, like doing some I mean, research and development and and, and, and preparing all yeah. the, the decision. How long does it take you when 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 you had it first time on the table and said, like, I want to have it. I want to change it. It's well, if I can give you a picture like so, yeah. it it's if I can wind back four years, I sat in front of my team, which is about 160 people 
that all do different things. And we have like a town hall meeting and they're looking at me. And I mean, I, I still pinch myself that I'm their boss because I still feel like a fucking idiot, to be honest. But, <laughs> you know, um, but anyway, we've built this business and actually um, it's a really unusual business and, and um, some amazing people. So I tell them, guys, we're going to spend 18 months dedicated to creating a new tax in Britain. And Can you imagine? Like, the res- like, yeah. No, no. They go. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. You know, like that's the shittest thing I've heard. Yeah. So it's so that's I mean so that's my own people. So I have to then convince them that there's logic, and then I have to take them on a journey, and then I have to take the British public on a journey. At the same time, um, uh, we have to talk to the best people in science, nutrition all the people that you would trust your children with, you know, from hospitals and pediatrics and, and uh, anyone that would care about the well-being of humans, you get them on side and you get them to provide science and nutrition measurement. And um, then there's the political side, which is kind of like, I've had to, I'm still not an expert in it, but like I've devoted 15 years to learning the structure of government, but also it's like a kind of, strange private school yeah. i mean the, the hierarchy and who knows who and and like the backstabbing and the so so like when i did school dinners campaign which is 15 years ago since then we've had 11 education secretaries and you know that if i had changed your head chef 11 times in 15 years you would have been bankrupt six years ago yeah. you know maybe longer uh, so so the idea that your own country has this flux of constant changing minister and what's also hilarious is they come in often knowing nothing about the subject, but then when they start to get good, they're moved on. So, so for me, it's a, a fascinating thing. But doing the campaigns is very, very hard. Um, How do you finance it? Uh, uh, good. Qu- I have to finance it. So, um, so we have businesses that throw off profit, obviously. But the one thing I haven't done, maybe stupidly, over the last twenty years, is I've never saved anything, uh, and I. <coughs> I haven't got like a, I don't know if you say like a, I haven't squirreled anything away. So I've always invested my cash in people and campaigns, really. Um, so I would finance um, Sugar Rush, which was what we named the documentary. I'd then try and get it commissioned by the channel. We get it commissioned by the channel. And then we try and bring the TV world and the documentary world together with the campaign world. Um, and most importantly, bring the pub- inform the public that this is a tax for good, not a tax for bad. Yeah. And then what we had to do with the government was try and, <coughs> I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it, but so I was the only non-political member allowed in a room with the government formulating our childhood obesity strategy. Um, so I'm like the real odd one in the room. And... At the time, it was David Cameron that was our prime minister. And he would say, look, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, but we're definitely, uh, we're, you're never going to get this sugary drinks tax through, never. And you say, well, why? And they said, well, two years ago, there was a reason to increase the minimum price of alcohol, mm-hmm. and all the science was there, all the love, sense, logic was there. Um, and the lodge and other countries had done it very successfully, but he failed to to make it pass through government, and it was too painful. He goes, "I'm not doing that again." 
So interestingly, when we got the sugary drinks tax through, it was um, the head of the tre treasury, the head of the, the money that kind of slightly broke ranks, actually. Um, and he, he had the power to make it happen, and he did. And in his speech, he said, if I look at my children and said, why didn't I do what, you know, why didn't I do it when I could? It wouldn't be the right thing to do. So actually, George Osborne, who was head of the Treasury, made that law. Um, so, of course, you know that I don't have any of that power to, you know, all I can do is influence the narrative that's in the newspapers and the narrative in the public. But what happens in our governments is, is, is affected by that, but you, it's not a direct effect. And did it change anything so far? Everything. What? Um, the sugary drinks tax in Britain is the most profoundly brilliant, excellent tax that I know of. Right? And I'll tell you why. Tell us about that. First of all, the point of it is to reduce consumption. So the good news is, is the consumption of sugary... So, so first of all, the largest source of sugar going into our kids and teenagers is from sugary sweetened drinks. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a clear sort of, I guess, bad guy. Mm -hmm. The tax lowered consumption, <coughs> which was important. Um, but also, um, for 20 years, we've been doing a voluntary reformulation with all the whole industry. And basically, the whole industry just kind of like, yeah, right, whatever. Yeah. You, know, you know, yeah, 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 shut up. You know, so nothing really happened. But when the sugary drinks tax came in, because we created a tax at a point of sugar per litre, everyone reformulated so quick. Before the law even came into action, two out of three products reformulated out of tax. So it was the fastest reformulation ever known. More importantly, uh, also this year it looks about around about 450 million, maybe 430, 450 million pounds of new money that can only be spent into primary schools for breakfast clubs and for sports clubs. And this is what we fought for. We, we did not agree with the tax unless the money was, they would say, hypothecated. Like, it has to go. The flow of that tax has to go to children and hope and health and opportunity and the poorest kids. So, um, so now my campaigns team, even after the law is achieved, now my campaigns team, through the Freedom of Information Law Act, my team is tracking the money. And currently there's 30 million pounds that's not accounted for. So that's what I'm trying to say about the campaigning. Like getting the law through and telling the story, amazing, and many bits of luck, sadly, too much luck, but we got it. Um, but then once it's all done, you know, reformulation, yes. Consumption down, yes. Raising money to go to school, yes. But then you've got to fucking track the money to see if people are being honest again. Yeah. So, um, so it's kind of like, and, and also, by the way, it's not my job. I mean, honestly, I, if, if I was going to be off the top of my head, I think campaigning, like my campaigns team um, is very small but very good quality. It's around about four to six people with freelancers that come in. Um, but I think over the last 15 years, we're talking like three million quid of cost with no revenue stream. You yeah. know? So it's, it's, you know, it, it's an unusual part of a business. But also, it's not my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and also when we talk to charities, you know, some charities you talk to and like people die and they leave millions of pounds in their will, you know, uh, and there's these charities that thrive on 
like cash from dead people that believe in birds or animals or this or that. So, but we've never had, we've never been very lucky with fundraising. We've, we've never been very lucky with, like, I've run charities for 16 years. And actually this year I shelved it because I, I actually felt that, I, I'm, of course I believe in charity, but for me, I don't. So now actually what we're doing is we're changing our whole business to be a social business. And um, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called a B Corp. So um, basically a B Corp is an American system of transparency about being very clear about who you are, what you do, how you employ, if you buy product, how you buy product, where you buy product, and then where does the profit go um, and your social purpose on the planet. So it's not perfect, but it's probably the best that exists. And there's about two and a half thousand companies that are B Corp and they all work almost like artisan food producers in, like if you go to France, they have um, the Confari, Confari, and basically you could be an artisan bread maker, cheese maker, wine maker, cider maker, and they all have a Confari, which is like a little gang. And the reason they need a gang is because it is so, so hard to exist against the industrialized machine. So the French worked it out years ago with DOP and, you know, and sort of like, you know, champagne can only be made in champagne. It like protects their people. It protects their geography. It protects their integrity. I mean, if you look at cheddar cheese, cheddar cheese is the most widely made cheese on the planet. And the people of cheddar, <laughs> they don't benefit from any of it. You know, um, everyone's, oh, yeah, where do you live? Oh, cheddar. Oh, you know, it must be skyscrapers and, you know, they must be rolling in cash. But, you know, it's not true. So I think Britain's been very slow at um, catching up with some of our neighbours. And like I say, this whole thing about learning from your neighbours, um, like when she says she's had success, well, first of all, it could be a lie. So we need to find that out. But also, if it is success, like... I would be stupid to not look at the detail of that success and transpire it. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, the campaigning stuff's hard, Tim. I mean, it's the hardest thing I do. It's the most emotional thing I do. Have, you ever, I, have you ever tried something and you didn't uh, uh, yes. aim your gold? Yeah, I, I, I told a story about two years ago that just totally didn't land. And, and I think that comes back to timing again. So let me explain a scenario to you. It, it'll be in Germany as well. Actually, maybe not in Germany, but... Um, so in Britain, um, we have breakfast and lunch provided by the government. And they have it 190 days of the year from the age of four to 16. So theoretically, the government is in charge of half a child's nutrition for their whole childhood. So that's why I did the school dinners campaign. Now, if you're a poor family, if you're a poor kid, which, you know, generally speaking, means that you are more vulnerable yep. um, and um, has certain patterns attached to it. But they are our most vulnerable communities, right? So I told a story, and a really important story, about in the school holidays, when everyone goes, yay, it's the holidays, yay! All the poor kids, mums and dads, are like, oh, no. <laughs> Because 190 days of the year, they get lunch and they get breakfast. Yeah. And then in the school holidays, they have the same money from their, from their uh, money from the state, um, but they don't have extra money for the, the food, right? So the money gets tight. So what you have, and look, it would be a very Germanic, you'd have it in Germany too. Like what you have is your average British person looking at the poorest people going, get a job, 
ponce. I don't know how you yeah, say ponce yeah, in German, yeah. but like, you know, you're a sponger, you know, you're taken from the state, you're a taker, you're not a giver, you're not, you're a taker. So, so but, but for me, like, it's such an important, like when you look at the, the health of a child, especially in their teens, at the beginning of a summer holiday and at the end, you can really track a, a negative spike because of vulnerability, lack of cash, lack of access to proper real food. So this is, I mean, this is the story of our time. This is probably the biggest story. Um, and when I landed the story, I thought I'd done a good job. But what I'd done, imagery is so, like if you have too many women with tattoos or if there's too many people and like, um, they could be doing something, chewing on gum or, do you know what I mean? If, if, you, te- if you visually and verbally tell the story slightly wrong, you'll just get a whole load of people going, you're a taker, you're not a worker. Yeah. And, and, and to be very clear, if you had 100 people on benefits, maybe there are some takers. Um, but my, my belief is it's not all of them. Yeah. And we can't tar all of them with the same brush. And my other belief as well, very, very strongly, uh, and I believe this for Britain, I believe this for Germany, is that a country is only defined by how bad bad is. But really, truly, like, like a country is defined by how bad bad is. So if you kind of have this divide between rich and poor and workers and givers and takers and spongers, if you allow the press to kind of boil that and simmer that and fester that, then you get problems like what we have now. And I believe it's connected to everything bad that's going on. Personally, I believe it's connected to the right, the left. It's 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 connected to old thinking that's given the oxygen to come back. I believe it's connected to Brexit, honestly. And, and, I, and I think it's about fairness, really. I, I think, uh, and what people that are over here maybe don't understand, and what I, I, what I have failed to communicate is that sometimes when things are bad, sometimes when people are vulnerable, like, they, they do not think about the life and, and the world we live in the same as these people. So in the summer holidays, what I see very clearly is those parents, if your kids are like, daddy, daddy, I'm hungry, daddy, daddy, I'm hungry, if that is the number one priority in your life, um, everything else is secondary. So what you have is this, and this is where the welfare state comes in, right? So when your minister there says, we have a mechanism for supporting kids. And, you know, for me, it's like, because I know how powerful that is. Because if you take the worry out of the first five years of being a parent, if you're vulnerable and if you're very poor, then actually, if, you're, if you love enough and if you're clever enough and if you fund it enough from a rich country, then what happens is you raise how bad bad is. And actually, everything's better. They get jobs and they flourish and they pay more tax and there is less crime. And, and do you know what I mean? So I kind of like, I, but I feel it and I see it. And technically I have a team that's good, but we fail too. We fail too. And again, I, th- I, I don't think there was anything wrong with my storytelling. I don't think there was anything wrong with my, um, the quality of what we did, but it was the wrong time. It was the wrong time. And I think that's the interesting thing, actually. Like, there's the hierarchy about what should we be talking about in England or Germany? What should we? What does science tell us that we should be talking about? And then there's another conversation, which is what are the public willing to talk about? That's another very important conversation. And then, very, very importantly, what are the press willing to talk about? So 
to think that they're all willing to talk about the same thing at the same time is complete bullshit. And it never, ever happens. And I think like that's... So you've got the people, the press, and the truth. And I think that's, that's you know, that's... That's right. I mean, that, now I understand what you mean with timing, because I think the, the atmosphere in the society is very often uh, moved by the press, by the uh, kind of... Uh, uh, Journalism. Sometimes they're all looking for the bad stuff. Sometimes they're going like more for the positive uh, uh, parts of the life. And if you if you get this timing, probably you wouldn't have failed. Um, talking kids. You you have five kids. Do you know their names? Yes. All their names. Yes. Go on then. Um, so currently, I have five kids. <laughs> I <think> say, <laughs> don't say number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. <laughs> well, uh, they have proper names. The good news is I have Poppy, my yeah. oldest, then Daisy, um, and uh, and I only remember one of my child's birthdays. Is that bad as well? Only one. Yeah, at the 18th of March is Poppy. I can't remember any of the others. <laughs> oh God! Um, it's not bad, a bit what it? you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't. I really don't. But having a look on your kids, like, what do you think? How will they eat in within the next 30 years? What's going to be good. like? Yeah, they'll eat good. I think. Um, no, but what what's going to be the the food world will be like? What's all about for them? Yeah. For, is there anything you you think will change or has to change? Because I mean, again, you 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 published a, a veggie cookery book, a vegetarian cookery book, which I think it's great that people like you, me, uh, uh, other very popular people, uh, uh, make it clear that vegetarian and nutrition is a very smart, clever, and basically. A very important way for the future because when you think about like amount of people on the earth, like how how will you produce the amount of food we have? Like it's it's gonna be a big massive problem, and if we like the smart guys or the guys with the possibilities to change things don't don't um, yeah don't don't work on 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 these ways of nutrition, we mm. we will like make big big mistakes. Big time. So what is the future of food? Fun. I think the future of food crumbs. I mean, uh, the truth is it could go anywhere. You know, if convenience and cash is the biggest driver of social change in anything, but particularly food, um, and if they also have the money to employ the best people and market the biggest campaigns, you know, um, we, we can expect to only see an extension of the last 40 years. Um, which is not a good thing. So I am hoping and I am praying that because currently Britain is in a bad situation and in a bad time and because it's not nice, I, the positive that I can take for that is generally speaking, humans are quite bad at learning from history and we're quite bad at being logical. Um, and also we've got lots to do. So I'm hoping that this kind of moment now might possibly give us maybe not now maybe not in the next two years but certainly in the next three years i'm really hoping and praying that clarity and truth has currency that has value um and the cultures around businesses um and mayors and towns and businesses and uh, political parties has um, just more like long-term thinking. 
So I think there's room for everyone. I think there's room for capitalism. I think there's room for big business to continue growing their profits. But I think um, to expect that it's in the same way as the last 30 years, um, it, that's the problem. You need to, people, money people, greedy money people who will always be there need to be a bit more bendy about how they invest in the future. And um, I, I would hope if there's a scenario where even outside of our own countries, you know, what if it was really easy and convenient for British people to buy an amazing food product from Bavaria and Amazon or someone like that were the kind of magic in between? I mean, that is true democracy, right? And that's progress. And, and I think as long as we can afford it, um, it's a cool thing. So I would like to think that the kids will continue to grow up in a world where there's choice, um, honesty. Um, my slight worry is, um, and I think the skill of being a politician, the skill of being a, a, a minister, is to not just think about you and your family. This is the trouble. So you have to, when you, when, if, your, if your goal is to be a chief of a village, that's different than being the chief of a town, which is different than the chief of a city, which is different than the chief of the whole country. You know, and, by the way, Angela Merkel's job, I mean, the hardest job in the world, right? And, and I, I'm not German, but like, I'm telling you, like, she's done all right. I know you've got problems, as do we, but she's like, she, she's done amazing. I mean, you know, like, when you do look at the G20, you know, how many women up there? She's, I think she's smashed it. I mean, no, there's no such thing as perfect, but I think, you know, a steady pair of hands is kind of has, and nothing's perfect, right? But I mean, I, I, hope, I hope that child health is a big deal in the future. I mean, I think everything's kind of changing. Um, but I mean, listen, I, I, I am slightly conscious that our generation I mean, are handing over a, a planet that's in not such good condition as when we got it. Yeah. I am conscious of that. I mean, Greta uh, is speaking for young people and adults and particularly men, certain men don't like it. They don't like being told what to do by a young girl who's right. <laughs> you it know, is, yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, again, it's sort of fascinating. To, I mean, to have a to, to have a 15, 16 year old child give the whole world a lesson on science. So, so what is your next big thing you're working on? Because um, I mean, I, I'm, sometimes I, I, I got lost like in the way what I want to teach people how to cook. I want to teach people how to take a proper diet, like without too much fat, too much that and sugar, reduce everything. I try to be politically correct. I try to be like we as I said, Sushin, what Greta is doing on it was in English. Fridays for future. Friday for Future, the CO2 amount of food and, and all, all the stuff and being like animal fair trade, all, all the stuff. It's so many points on, on doing, yeah, we, we're almost finished. Um, and, and sometimes I get lost and then I have to sit down and think again. And it was really, really nice to talk to you uh, because I got an, an, a lot of inspiration and a lot of information again. Uh, I'm, I'm missing one information and I'm, it's, it's a very personal question I'm asking, you know, I do a TV show called Kitchen Impossible, which is amazing. It's very emotional. It's like... I've seen it. It's, it's, it's an incredible show. So, it's what, three years now? Yeah, it's not. It's 
the fifth year already wow. and it's, it's still going through the roof and, and still people are shouting and screaming and asking for a very special person. Uh, uh, I have no time, sorry. That's, no, it's not about you, it's oh, about okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time officially I'm asking you, when do you take part? Next year? I need yeah, like three to four days of your life. Okay. So Deal. And, 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 and even if we it, record it. And it's a traveling show and if you don't want to travel... Do we get uh, to travel we, we, together? Uh, yeah, we could do. Basically, we would do. Uh, yeah, I promise this. We travel together. Yeah. We, we do a thing together, and then I would take your. Do we get out. to share the same sleeping bag? If you want to. <laughs> if you want to. So you see, now then my my good old days. We have another guy on the show um, weeks ago, and he he had, he spent the night together with Tim, and so uh, deal. He told deal. us about his. Because <laughs> there's one problem about the podcast: people can't see you, and it's so nice to look at you when you're talking and when you're not serious, and when you try to explore and explain your world. It's very nice. It's 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 just beautiful. Beautiful to watch, beautiful to listen to. Um, I have a last question. I could prove the word that's not always about me within yeah. the podcast. Yeah, People <laughs> will go like, <laughs> what? True. So normally it's yeah. like 80% me talking, 20%. No, it's 90-10. It's 90-10. Yeah, it's 90-10%. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, Again, it's you you publish a vegetarian cookery yep. book which is a brilliant christmas present yeah yeah so Thank this you. is my final question for you guys what? um what is the veggie christmas goose so oh for uh, you I mean, and for you i i think um the for me personally the thing that i've got most excited about this year is in here and it is a veggie pativier And it's an interesting one because we're using celeriac and we roast that for a couple of hours with the skin on and we just like, like and you don't have to do it, you just throw it in the oven, right? So you don't do anything. Um, and then you slice it up like kind of a cut of meat really and then you make this amazing mushroom sauce and uh, you wrap it in pastry and actually... I mean, other than it being a lovely dish anyway, um, when I serve it in front of people with meat, the meat eaters want a slice too. And I always think that that's a good, a good sign. So it's probably the most complex recipe in the whole book. Um, I've tried to keep it as simple as possible. That's vegetarian. Um, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great dish. And of course, when there's puff pastry, it's indulgent, you get crunch. Um, when you cook the celeriac, it's, I don't know if you've discovered this, Tim, but like in the last four years, I've sort of realized that I've spent my whole career peeling veg. <laughs> and then not only is that the most nutritious part, but also a lot of the, fla the deep flavor is in that skin. So I felt like a complete fucking idiot. So uh, celeriac particularly, like if you smoke, we, when I used to have barbacoa at the restaurant, we used to, you know, cook it like a piece of lamb for like four hours over coal and smoke. And my God, the free and uh, we used to cook in ash um but anyway that that's in a regular oven that we do it and um i don't know i think it's quite symbolically i think it's quite if you think <laughs> the love that we put into a beef wellington yeah if you think about it you know um you, you have that over here yeah right? sure yeah. sure um the love that goes into that is equivalent and actually the enjoyment is pretty much equivalent i would say But try. The, the good thing is I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite innovative with this way of uh, uh, cooking veg because I'm just a f lazy bastard in the kitchen. So I didn't peel my vegetables. Never, ever. I just put it really? skin on yeah, because I'm too lazy. 
So I, I've never seen the sense in, 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 peeling. in peeling a carrot. Just wash it and that's it. Just wash it. If the yeah. sand is off, maybe I cut the sand off and that's it because I'm just lazy. So sometimes laziness is good. And I think it's, it's, it's not about a vegetarian goose or something like this. I think more it's about tradition and basically it's about the moment of sitting to, together on the table and the food which you put on the plate could be everything basically and it doesn't have to be meat. For mm. us, it's something very special uh, um, to have the big roast on the, on, the, on the plate with the cabbage and yeah, the yeah. dumplings and the sauce and everything. And I can remember a Christmas feast which I done like 60 70 years ago uh, ago and i fucked up the goose i just burned it i forgot it so we had like cheese bread, <laughs> we, we, we took some bread, butter, cheese, everything. We had like a proper armbrot and, and even that, if you can't cook, don't start off with that on Christmas day yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's well, stress, stress really Well, in ruins. Germany, so, you're yeah. big on Christmas Eve, right? It, it, it changed. The, the northern part is very down to earth. So basically in, within my family, we had potato salad and sausage. That's our Christmas dinner. But then on the 25th, we do the, the, the entire roast stuff right, and, okay. and, and, and the big feast. And, but on Christmas itself, on the 24th, it's, uh, we are more supposed to be a bit more down to the earth, which we are not, hmm. no more. So, but it's about tradition. And if you're able to cook, uh, do, do, do some proper roasting. So you, you have um, been very successful at pumping out children very quickly. Mm -hmm. So really, like that, you've mm -hmm. gone from no kids at Christmas mm -hmm to loads of kids at Christmas. Yep. Are you feeling this new energy of Christmas? It, because it, Christmas used to be about us and mum and dad, and now the baton is now... Are you f I've kind of done it slowly over like 15 years. Like, are you feeling this new excitement for Christmas and little eyes and little faces looking at all Definitely. these things? Definitely. I put out all the old, good old family traditions with a bell for the Christmas tree, cutting the Christmas, uh, Christmas tree, like like even doing the, all the balls and stuff like Decorations. this. Decorations. And the food is not yet so important. So it's, it's about sweet stuff, mandarins and, and nuts and all this stuff. Yeah. And, but they're too small to make like a proper... Christmas dinner. Yeah, it's yeah. about presents, and that's what I'm surprised by. It, it's enough to have one present. I always, I always think it's funny when you're when your kids are getting intelligent to a degree, learning about the world around them, and there's a moment in time where every kid goes, in in kind of kid language, they kind of go. So are you kind of fine with this man coming into our house in the middle of the night and just kind of like opening their door and like eating our food and drinking our drink and kind of leaving random stuff, you know, like, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's okay, it's Santa, it's okay. It's like, but I always thought that was a funny... Okay, so I think not. these are great pictures, very romantic pictures in a podcast to have an end here. Nice. Unfortunately, the next uh, podcast with him is in London, I would say. Please, and, anytime. But Always definitely welcome. next year you're bored in there. I'd love to do it. I've okay. been talking about it. Um, Gennaro, Gennaro said, should I do this thing? I said, dude, you've got to do the show. It's an no, amazing it's show. Fun. It's and he great comes, fun. What I love about Gennaro, he, he kind of, he doesn't really know what's going on. He's sort of like, he's, he's like a bull. And yes. you point him in a direction. You give him a target and you say, go. Yeah. And um, he goes, Tim's talking to me about, I don't know. I went, dude. Just do it. It's amazing. And uh, he came back and goes, oh, my God, it's amazing. I went, yeah, I told you. But, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do, uh, do it. You know what's so funny? We, we did the final yesterday or two days ago, and it's, it's, it's going to be great. You know, we'll take part at Kitchen Impossible next year. This so what's year, his role for, in the story? How does it work? He's the original chef. So I sent a chef uh, to Gennaro, and he has to cook a dish, and the chef 
uh, from Germany has to figure out what is inside, how is it cooked, who who is the original chef, and then he has to cook the original dish without knowing the recipe. So, which is okay-ish difficult when by the technique for from a Gennaro dish, it's lentils and some pasta, but to make it in that perfection is almost impossible. That's why we call it Kitchen Impossible. Mm. It's it's sometimes it's about technique, sometimes it's about emotion, sometimes it's about uh, authentic cuisine. So we traveled all the world, Japan, Korea. And did, so did you Israel. develop that idea from nothing? Um, the original idea is from somebody else, but the way we are doing it, it's a mixture of three like very strong people who, who, who did it to this perfection. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's the best. Just but two but days Germany ago. loves it, right? It's yeah. like the biggest cooking show. And, and two days ago, we just like, finished the show and I said, like, I'm so proud out of, uh, of my team because they have done such a brilliant TV program, which is... No, serious. It's it's amazing. We we have love, hate, uh, and joy, friendship. Uh, it, it's like a journey. It's 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 amazing. It's a real. It's real television, and I just love it. Well, listen. Let's do so it we see you next, next year. year yeah, for sure. Yeah. And let's talk about it over lunch. We're off to lunch now. Yeah. So is this where we say goodbye to your podcast? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Say goodbye. Well, say it in well, German. Thank, you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Deutschland. Um, 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 grazie mille. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you, Deutschland. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not speaking in German. But um, I had three years of German as a as a student, and um, no, well, well, my teacher was too. She was she was very. The only German foxy. word I've ever taught you was the the word for cornichons. Do you still remember? Gewürzgurken, natürlich. Or Schlanger, or ich bin geil, or das ist geil, or you know, ich bin Jamie. Mel 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 Mel